uh, services about how to be led by the Holy Ghost, divine guidance. And we've used a couple of text scriptures that we'll use again this morning. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now we've also identified from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 the makeup of man. Paul said, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that man is a spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. Jesus, in speaking to the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4, I think it's verse 24 where he said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, if man is made in the image of God and God is a spirit, then by definition, man has to be a spirit being as well. We also looked in Romans chapter 4, Verses 14 and 16. Verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16 tells us how He's going to lead us. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Now, folks, we know that God wants us to grow up spiritually. We know that God wants to mature us. He wants us to be mature. But what is spiritual growth? I would dare say that that a a small percentage of the church body, the church world, even recognizes that we are spirit beings. But if man doesn't know himself, how is he going to grow in God? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, turn with me to this one. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick. And powerful. One translation says full of life and power. I like that. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And of the joints and marrow. And is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now I want you to notice the word of God divides between spirit and soul. If the spirit and the soul of man were the same thing they couldn't be divided. And when it comes to guidance, again, for the small percentage of the church world that knows anything about these truths or or cares about these truths, maybe I need to qualify that. I guess every Christian, it would be hard for me to imagine any Christian that would claim to not want to be led by the Holy Ghost. But that doesn't mean that they know that he will guide them. And it certainly doesn't mean that they're going to know how to be guided Or led. And if the church world doesn't major on the fact that we are spirit beings and the leading of the Holy Ghost is available to us and teach us how to be led by the Spirit of God, then spiritual growth is a passing fancy. It's impossible for that to take place. The only ingredient or the main ingredient, maybe it would be better to say, the main ingredient for spiritual growth is the Word of God. Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. You remember that Jesus identified when the devil tempted him in Mark chapter 4, well, Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, both. 
Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry and the devil appeared to him and tempted him and said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus answered and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus is saying that the same thing that food is for the body, the necessity of food for the body to, to grow and operate in a healthy manner. The word of God is the same thing to our spirits. It's the word of God that will bring us into the knowledge of who we are in Christ and why we are who we are. Now in John chapter 8, look with me in verse uh, 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Now, I want you to stop and pay some attention to this. Notice he's talking to believers. He's talking to Jews that believe. Now, they couldn't be born again because he hadn't yet been to the cross. But salvation is just as available for them as soon as the price is paid and Jesus is raised from the dead. They are believers in waiting, if you will. Jesus is talking to people that believe in him, people that accept that he's the Messiah, people that believe that he is the one that God sent. And notice he says to the believers, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. Folks, it came as a real shock to me many years ago that God makes a distinction between believers and disciples. Now we focus on the believers part. But even in the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all men. He didn't say make believers. But so much of the work of the church in this modern day, and maybe, uh, well, I guess it's always been this way. But the key element or the focal point of the work of the church in the earth is making believers, not disciples. So Jesus said, if you continue in my word, again, he's talking to believers. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Verse 32 is the one everybody knows. And you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. And a lot of times people will pull verse 32 out, separate it from verse 31. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Well, folks, there's only one place to find the truth and that's the word. So any freedom that is obtained is going to come from knowledge of the word. Now we know that being born again makes us free. But how do we get born again? Paul went into a great discourse in Romans chapter 10. He said, how shall they hear without a preacher? How can they get saved if they don't hear? How can they hear if they don't have a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Every person that's ever been born again has been born again through the knowledge of the truth of the word concerning salvation. But why is that the place where the church stops going to the word? Why is that as far as we go? The Bible sure indicates that God wants us to go further. Jesus said, if the works that I do shall you do also. Now, I know as well as you do 
that there are times where the Holy Ghost just moves into a situation and does it. He just takes control and does things according to God's plan and purpose. But that's a pretty small percentage of the time that it works that way. Yet that's the way that so much of the church world is looking for God to operate. We see this all the time working with people in the healing suit. I can't tell you the number of people, and there are always people from outside the church. People that are here know better, I guess. I hope. I believe. But so often people are looking for somebody to pray for them. So that God can all of a sudden do a work. The Bible says in uh, uh, Psalm 107, verse 20, I believe it is. He said, God sent his word and healed them. But so often people are trying to get uh, prayer. They're wanting somebody to pray for them. So that they don't have to do the word of the word, the work of the word of God bringing them healing. So many times people are wanting us to pray contrary to the will of God. They don't want to learn the word. They don't want to stand on the word. They don't want to put the word in practice in their lives. They just want somebody to pray and change their situation. And that is so seldom the way that it works. So seldom. And the same thing's true in every other area. We've got too much of the church world that's in bondage to debt and finances, financial difficulty and poverty. Well, if God sent his word to heal us, then he sent his word to bring us provision as well. No matter what the subject is, no matter what the area is, it always works the same way. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The eternal life that you and I have is totally dependent, or maybe I should say it like this, our experience and our victory regarding eternal life is totally dependent on the word of God being put in practice in our hearts. Totally dependent. Absolutely dependent. People are wanting prayer to do the job of the word and it, it won't work. Now don't get me wrong, prayer is important. But it can't take the place of the word of God in our lives. It just can't do it. Now look with me over to John chapter 16. Jesus in talking about the Holy Ghost. Said in verse 13. John 16, 13. How be it when he the spirit of truth has come. Notice the Holy Ghost is called the spirit of truth. Now don't forget where we started. In John chapter 8. We just looked at it a moment ago. Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. And then you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. What's going to make the difference in us knowing the truth and and gaining our freedom? The degree that we continue in the word. So he says in John 16, 13, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. Notice this, the Holy Ghost is called the spirit of truth. And the Holy Ghost's job is to guide us into all truth. Well, what is the truth? Jesus in his prayer 
at the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 17, verse 17. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy word, Father, thy word is truth. He didn't say thy word contains truth. He said thy word is truth. Now that's the truth that will make us free if we continue in his word. That's the truth that will make us free if we continue in his word. Now you may also remember this struggle that Paul talked about in his own experience writing to the Romans, Romans chapter 7. He talked about the struggle between his spirit and his flesh. He felt trapped in certain circumstances and situations. He felt trapped by the desires of his body because they were contrary to the desires of his heart, his spirit. The inward man. The man that's made new. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away and behold, all things become new. Well, we know that the old things that pass away aren't physical things. We know that the old things that pass away aren't things of the soul or the mind or the intellect. The things that pass away are spiritual things. Spiritual things. And Paul goes into great detail along with other writers in the New Testament to identify that the body is not affected by this, the new birth. The soul is not affected by the new birth. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 12 and instructed them in the first two verses of the chapter. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most other translations translate that, which is your spiritual worship. So when Jesus said, they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth, the spiritual worship he's talking about is presenting your body a living sacrifice. Now notice Paul didn't say that God will do that for you. That's not God's job. We're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Paul said on another occasion, I keep my body under. What's he talking about? He's talking about letting his body be dominated by a spirit that's been made new where the life of God is where the power of God is within us then he went on in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 and said and be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or determine by experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God now the good and acceptable and perfect will of God that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2 That would be the same thing that Jesus is talking about in in, uh, John chapter 8, wouldn't it? Where he said, if you continue in my word, then are you to my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Experiencing the perfect will of God in your life would have to be freedom, wouldn't it? Jesus said in another place, he whom the Son has set free is free indeed. That word indeed means completely. He brought us a complete victory. He purchased for us a complete freedom. So Paul is writing to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 12 and very clearly says that we have a work. We that are born again, we that are spirit-filled, we have a specific work concerning our bodies and concerning our minds. James said it this way, James 121. 
He said, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. In other words, he said, just don't get distracted. Don't allow yourself to get distracted. And receive with meekness the engrafted word. He's talking about the place of the word of God in our lives again. The engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people that are spirit-filled. And he's saying that their souls have not yet been saved. Well, then that tells us that the new birth didn't change their souls. Certainly didn't change their bodies. In the Old Testament, David gives us a hint about some of these things too. In Psalm 23, he said, the Lord restores my soul. The Lord restores my soul. Now, both in James 1.21, Romans 12.1 and 2, and in Psalm 23, it speaks of a regeneration of the soul. David said restores. I think maybe restores is the best way for us to understand because when Paul used the term renewing of the, of the mind, that word renew, the, the root word of that word renew, it means reversal by repetition. Reversal by repetition. So what Paul is talking about in the renewing of the mind is a reversal through action on our part. A reversal. Well, restoration where David said the Lord restores our soul. Restoration implies a return to an original condition. A return to an original condition. God wants us to return to an original condition. Now he's not talking spiritually. Our spirits are made new. God takes out the old stony heart, the heart of unbelief, the hard heart of unbelief. He takes that out of us and puts his spirit or puts a new spirit within us, recreates a spirit. He doesn't heal our spirits. He doesn't refurbish our spirits. He doesn't restore our spirits. He puts a new spirit on the inside of us. Then he puts his spirit in us. Jesus talked about this when he spoke about the wine skins. He said, you don't put new wine in old skins because then the wine skins break and everything is spilled and ruined. Well, the wine skins that he's talking about is a type of our spirit. He said, you can't put the life of God in an old, unregenerated spirit. That's why you have to be born again. That's why we have to be made new in spirit so that we can stand, we can survive the Holy Spirit being placed in us. Well, what's the original condition that we're to be restored to or our minds are to be renewed back to? He's got to be talking about Adam before the fall. Has to be. Absolutely has to be. Folks, when God made Adam and Eve and they ruled on the earth, the reason that God said that he was creating man in his image, according to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the work of our hands. Man was created to have dominion on the earth. Now, a lot of people look at scriptures like 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where it says Satan is the God of this world. And it's easy, unless you continue in the word and do some study on it, it's easy to come up with the idea that Adam took, or that Satan took Adam's authority. And so now man doesn't have authority anymore. Satan has it all. 
But where the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world, the word world means time period. It doesn't mean planet. It doesn't even mean the world system. There are three words that are used primarily talking about the earth or this world. The first is the planet. The Bible says the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. That's talking about the planet. It was created by God and it still belongs to him. The second word is the word cosmos in the Greek. It's the word cosmos and it means the earth system, the world system. Now Satan tries to disrupt the world system and he does so through tragedies, hurricanes, earthquakes, and so forth. Sometimes those are works of the devil and sometimes they're just the earth groaning and travailing because of the bondage that it's under. But it doesn't say Satan has authority over the world system. There's no question that things are different now than they were before the fall. There's no question that the laws of physics were altered by the fall. But Satan's not the God of this world system as much as he'd like to be. He's just not. Well, then what is he the God of? If he's not the God of the planet, if he's not the God of the world system, what is he the God of? He's the God of this time period. And his time's running out. It was of great interest to me when I began to look at some of the things along this line. The first occurrence that the Bible tells us about where Jesus cast the devil out of somebody. That evil spirit in the individual said, I know who thou art. Have you come to torment me before the time? What's first and foremost on the devil and evil spirit's minds? That their time is running out. His concern, the evil spirit's concern was, I know the time is coming, but you're early. I take great comfort in the devil knowing that his time is running out. Don't you? Well, if Satan is not the God of this planet, if he's not the God of this world system, if he's only the God of this time period, and of course that time period is, ends when the church is raptured, and Jesus comes back for us. That's pretty easy to understand. Well, then who has authority here on the earth? Satan has a little bit of authority. There's no question about that. But that's related to time, not power. He doesn't have authority on the earth because he's big and bad and mean and powerful. He has authority on this earth because of the time period that man delivered unto him. Well, then who still has authority on the earth? God never changes. God's not an Indian giver. He didn't give man authority and then took it back when he messed things up. God wanted man to have authority in the earth and before the fall. And since God never changes, it's still going to be God's plan and purpose for man to have authority now. One of the greatest deceptions of the, of the devil and the way the devil operates is that he's by and large hidden from the church the authority that we have on this earth. One thing's for sure, if you don't think you have authority, you're sure not going to try to exercise any. 
So this restoring of the soul, this renewing of the mind, this saving of the soul is a return in our thinking, in our understanding, in our intellect. It's a return to the understanding that man has authority on the earth just like when God created us. That's what God wants your mind to be renewed to. And isn't that saying exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 8? If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Isn't it exactly the same thing? Different words, but doesn't it carry the same meaning? And you shall know the truth. If you continue in my word, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, really the whole chapter is, uh, is good for us, but I won't take the time to read the whole thing. Let me start with verse 1, then I'll skip down a little bit. He said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul writing by the Holy Ghost, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Verse 4, he said, there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of us all who is above all and is in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Notice that Paul is talking about the resurrection and the work of the resurrection and the effects or the results of the work of resurrection or the, the new birth, eternal life being given to us. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. This is talking about taking those that were in the Old Testament saints that were in Abraham's bosom, taking them with him up into heaven. You remember the story over in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus tells us about the rich man and Lazarus. Some people want to pretend that that's a, a parable. But if it's a parable, why did Jesus name the beggar? Parables are always presented in one thing being like something else. For example, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like planting a seed in the ground. That's a parable. But when Jesus said there was a certain rich man, he's saying there was a, a, a living person that I'm talking about. Otherwise, you couldn't use the word certain. And then he said there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Well, you remember the story how both of them died. The rich man in hell lifted up his eyes and saw Lazarus afar off in Abraham's bosom. We see in that story that the man's spirit was in hell. But his soul is intact. His mind is willing. His emotions are intact. He's able to recognize. He's able to remember. He's able to identify. His emotions are still present because he seeks for Abraham to send somebody back to the earth to keep his brothers, his five brothers, from coming to this terrible place. So his intellect is intact, his will is intact, and his emotions are intact. Which would lead us to understand, and I believe it's the reason Jesus told us specifically this story, not in parable form, but real life, the way that it really works. Our spirits are certainly eternal. But our souls are eternal too. Folks, we're going to have the same mind in heaven after Jesus takes us there with him 
as we have now. Paul talked about being caught up into heaven when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, I couldn't tell if I was in my body or out of my body. Now, how is that possible? If heaven is the complete change for us, like so much of the church world thinks that it is, how could Paul not know whether he was in his body or out of his body? See, Paul is saying, I was the same. I was the same guy when I was caught up into heaven and stood before the throne room of God as I am now. That means that if our minds are going to be the same in heaven as they are now, that means whatever we need to learn about eternity and about the things of God and whatever spiritual truths should be and need to be learned, we're either going to have to learn them here or learn them there. And I believe Paul's instruction about the renewing of our minds is an encouragement that we learn those things here. I'm not sure how you learn certain things in heaven. How do you learn to overcome resistance when there is no resistance? How do you learn to stand strong in faith, not moved by your emotions, what you see or what you feel, when in heaven there'll be nothing that contradicts what you see and what you feel? How is that possible? Folks, I'm just asking questions. I don't know. I'd like to be able to say, here's how it's possible. But I really don't have a clue. So there are things that are incumbent upon us to learn here on the earth. There may be things that we can't learn other than here on the earth. I got you thinking now, don't I? Well, that's good practice for some of you. Back to Ephesians 4. Verse 8, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? It's telling us that Jesus went to hell. I know a lot of people don't like to hear it that way, especially in those terms, but that's what the Bible says. Now you, you're not forced to believe that. You don't have to believe that, and a lot of people won't. But it's part of learning the truth that will make you free. Maybe we should consider it this way. Is there any truth in the word of God that won't make us free? Well, then we should learn as much of it as we could. Whereas we can't. Now, he that ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill or complete all things. And he gave some. Now, the reason he's talking about Jesus being taken into heaven is because he's saying this is where these ministry gifts came from. They came from Jesus' exalted position at the right hand of the Father. They didn't come from the Son of Man here on the earth. They came from the Redeemer, the resurrected Redeemer. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. For what purpose? Verse 12, for the perfecting or the maturing of the saints. For the work of the ministry. That means the saints are supposed to do the work of the ministry. 
not the ministers, not the ministry gifts. The ministry gifts are supposed to teach us and train us so that we can mature in him, grow up spiritually, literally, so that the church body can do the work of the ministry to produce the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. How long is that going to last? Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and under the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, mature man, complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, for as long as the earth is here. That we henceforth, verse 14, this is why God wants us to grow up. This is why the Holy Ghost is teaching us and, and pointing us in this direction. That we henceforth be no more children, spiritual children, tossed to and fro and carried about every, with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Notice what the characteristics of spiritual children are. He identifies a few of them here. He says they're unstable. They're up one day and down the next. They're easily deceived. And there are plenty of people that are just waiting to deceive you and take advantage of you. Usually financially. That's usually what it boils down to in some way or another. God doesn't want us to be children like that. He wants us to be steady. He wants us to be established. He wants us to be strong. But again, the question has to be asked, how can we be strong in God if we don't even know who we are? I believe that's the reason that Romans 8.16 speaks of the Spirit of God bearing witness with our spirits for the most important thing there is, and that is that we are the children of God. And again, I don't believe that that just means to know that we're saved. I believe to know that we're the children of God, the Spirit of God bearing witness with us to know that we're the children of God speaks of knowing who we are in Christ, speaks of knowing the victory that Jesus won for us. One of the great tragedies, maybe the greatest tragedy concerning the church world, and certainly one of the saddest days that many will ever experience is when they stand before Jesus and finally see with their eyes open who they were made to be and what they could have done here on the earth. The Bible says in heaven, God will wipe away every tear. Well, if heaven is only good and happy feelings and all that kind of stuff, what tear is there to wipe away? I can only think of two things that would make us sad or tearful in heaven. One is to realize what we forfeited that we could have had and could have been here on the earth. And the other of course, might be to realize that some of our loved ones are not there. Other than that, what's going to make you cry in heaven? If Jesus wipes away every tear, that means somebody's crying. I've got you really thinking now, don't I? I can see it on your faces. So he says, here's what the ministry gifts are supposed to do. They're supposed to give us the truth of the word to perfect us or mature us. So that we Christians, the layman, can do the work of the ministry. 
so that the body of Christ is edified or built up. Notice verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Paul identifies by the Holy Ghost, he identifies what spiritual maturity is. Speaking the truth in love. Well, how are we going to know the truth? Jesus said the only way we'd know the truth is if we continue in his word. That continuing in his word would bring us to the knowledge of the truth. That would make us free. Now I want you to look with me over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. I'll just start in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained, have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that phrase, we have the same faith. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. He said, we having the same spirit of faith, we believe and therefore have we spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Paul is saying the same thing that Peter is saying. Both of them are saying that we have the same faith as God who created the world. The same faith that created the universe. We have that. We have a measure of the same faith that Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty three would move mountains. Now, does anybody feel like you've got that? Have any of us ever felt like that we had that? Well, then we have a decision to make. We feel weak, but the Bible says we're strong. Which way is it? Well, if the Bible says it and the Bible is truth, then we are strong. But how many people keep the, let that feeling of weakness keep us out of using the strength that we have? That's part of growing up in God. So again, Peter said, we like, have obtained the like precious faith with us, the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Please notice that grace and peace are multiplied through knowledge. Now the knowledge he's talking about has to be the word of God. That's the only knowledge that there is that God cares about or that pertains to spiritual growth. Grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of him, of God, and of Jesus Christ our Lord. According, here's how it works, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice those things that pertain to life and godliness have already been given. We don't have to get God to give us anything else. So many people are trying to get more of what they have, and what they have is sufficient to move mountains. What they have is sufficient to walk in victory in every area and every respect. But again, it's so easy and it's such a Christian thing to do for people to try to substitute the truth of the word, the knowledge of the word, with prayer. You can tell it's a good service when flies start coming after you. You've got to be kidding. 
Well, we didn't have a joke here, so God put one in himself, I guess. Is he gone? The way people are looking at me, they're look, looking like, well, there he is. All right, let me back up. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Notice how you enter into all the things that God planned for you through the knowledge of Jesus and what he did. Now let's approach it this way. The grace of God, there's a lot of teaching on it nowadays. There's a lot of definitions that are used. The, the uh, most common definition, I guess, is unmerited favor. I really don't like that one. And maybe it's just a personal thing, but I spent too much of my life understanding the unmerited part and totally missing out on the favor part. So the grace of God, the, the word picture that's used is somebody stooping down to help somebody at a lesser level. It would be like a king stooping down to help a guy that's homeless in the street and taking him home and bestowing on him honor and good things. That's the word picture for grace. Well, if that's the picture of what God did for us, he did it through Jesus, didn't he? So the definition I use, and it's just my personal thing, you can like it or not like it or whatever. Maybe you've got something better than I do. But the grace of God to me means the finished work of Jesus. Everything that Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, just using that definition, I think I can make the point better. Grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of Jesus. How does the finished work of Jesus get bigger? How does it grow? How does it increase? How can it be multiplied? Well, it doesn't change. But through knowledge of the word, the reality of it in us changes. The reality of it in us grows. So where Peter is saying grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of God, it simply means in my understanding, it simply means that as we gain a greater understanding of what Jesus did for us, we can walk more and more in what it is. Everybody okay with that? Grace and peace be multiplied unto us through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. See, that can't change. That can't grow. He's given you everything there is. There's nothing left for him to give you. He's given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Whereby, because this is true, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. And he's talking to people that are saved. How is it that he's saying that people that are saved can, through the knowledge of God, be partakers of the divine nature? He's not talking about a change in your spirit. That was made new when you made Jesus your Lord and Savior. He's talking about a restoration of the soul. Or as James called it, the saving of the soul. He's saying you can live more in the divine nature 
than you are now by gaining additional knowledge of who Jesus is and what God has done for us. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The corruption that's in the world through lust, he's talking about is spiritual death. You've escaped that. You escaped spiritual death. And for most people, and there's an element of truth here, but it's not the whole truth. For most people, having escaped spiritual death means that we go to heaven when we die. But we have eternal life here. We have eternal life now. Folks, if there's something about going to heaven, however we go, whether it's through physical death or being translated by Jesus himself, Jesus, us being alive when Jesus returns, I mean. If there's something about heaven that gives us eternal life that we don't have now, then the blood of Jesus wasn't enough by itself. If God needs a change of location to complete or accomplish something, then the blood of Jesus was not sufficient on its own. Are you with me? We have eternal life now, whether we're here on the earth or whether we go to heaven. We have the same victory over sin, sickness, poverty, and spiritual death right now. That's what we'll have in heaven. So what are we to do? Let me close with this. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 13. Galatians 5, 13. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, folks, what Paul is saying here is the end result of all spiritual growth, the end result of all spiritual development, the end result of all of the victory that Jesus purchased for us. Everything that belongs to us as children of God comes down to this one thing. Comes down to one thing, and that is love. Remember Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love may grow up. Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he said, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Well, what do we want to grow in? What does God want us to grow in? He wants us to grow in the knowledge of what belongs to us so that we can walk in total and complete freedom. God really wants us to put the devil underfoot. He's empowered us to put the devil underfoot. And it's the word of God and only the word of God that brings us to the place where the man on the inside, what Peter called the hidden man of the heart, what Paul called the inward man, the spirit that was reborn. He wants us to let that inward man dominate the outward man. 
And it only comes through the knowledge and application of the word. So he said, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, in other words, he's talking about if we as Christians live like the world lives, according to what we see and according to what we feel, take heed that we be not consumed one of another. In other words, God's saying, if you're going to live an, an earthly life, a life that is very little different than the unsaved live, good luck. You're on your own. He can't help you in that. Because you've chosen things of this natural world, things of the flesh over things of the spirit. And that's what Paul's dilemma was in Romans chapter 7. He said, I find myself doing stuff that the man on the inside, the real me, despises. And the things that the man on the inside, which always wants to do right, The thing that the man on the inside wants to do is not the stuff I wind up doing. Paul's talking about the same conflict to the Romans that he's going to talk about here in the Galatians. This I say then, verse 16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's saying let yourself be dominated by that inward man, that born again man, that hidden man of the heart that was created in righteousness. Let that man dominate. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now the translators must have thought that this word spirit was referring to the Holy Spirit because they capitalized it. But folks, it can't be the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit doesn't lust against flesh. The Holy Spirit has no dealing with flesh whatsoever. But you do, and I do. So where he says the flesh lusts against the spirit, it's the same thing that he wrote to the Romans saying I'm in a dilemma because what I want to do from the inside is not what my body winds up doing. That's the conflict. Not between God and the flesh, but between your spirit and your flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit... Notice it comes down to being guided by the Holy Ghost again. Divine guidance. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I told you before, as I've also told you in time past. That they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It does not say those that do such things shall not go to heaven. It says they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't live like people that he describes in the previous verses and expect to walk in victory here on the earth. Just can't do it. John wrote to the church and he said that believers, if believers commit sin, they're not really saved. And that verse of scripture has torn some people apart because the devil has used it to condemn them. But that's not really what it says. It talks about they that practice sin. That live habitually in these things that Paul is identifying. 
He's saying you can't do that and really be saved. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. Now what is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is the result of us being made new creatures in Christ Jesus. It's a result of the righteousness of God that's been given to us. Or that we've been made. But the fruit of the Spirit. Here are the results of the Spirit-led life. These are the results of letting the man on the inside dominate the man on the outside. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, literally faithfulness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. He's saying, here's a sign that you're growing and maturing spiritually. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Spiritual growth is the result of the knowledge of the Word of God, the knowledge of the truth of who we've been made in Christ Jesus and allowing the man on the inside to dominate the man on the outside. That's what spiritual growth is. That's what spiritual maturity is. And it's not out of reach for any one of us. Will we stumble and fall? Sure. Does God hold against, uh, hold against us the times that we do stumble and fall? No. Thank God that was one of the first things that Paul identified in his dilemma. He said there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. See, folks, the fact that there is a struggle means that you want to do the right thing. The fact that Paul struggled with his flesh as identified in Romans chapter 7 is proof that he wanted to do the right thing from the inside. See, if you don't care about the difference between right and wrong, doing wrong doesn't bother you. That's why the unsaved in the world are able to do anything and everything they want to do and their conscience doesn't bother them because their conscience hasn't been affected by the new birth. But the fact that the devil is able to bring condemnation to us, hopefully we grow into the place where we don't take it. We don't take the bait. But the fact that the devil is able to do that means the man on the inside is really born again and and really does always want to do the right thing. And that's why there's no condemnation. Because Jesus has already paid the price for everything that we might ever do that's wrong knowing full well that the man on the inside never wanted to sin. Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse 10, love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We have one job and only one job to do concerning our own spiritual growth and development. And that is to walk in love. Romans 5.5 5 says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. 
by the Holy Ghost when he was given to us. Well, when did that occur? When we were born again. I personally believe that there is one fruit of the Spirit, and that is love. And the other things that describe it are just characteristics of the love of God. I see the fruit of the Spirit not like there's nine different things on a table, but rather like an orange that has sections. And this is what the love of God is supposed to look like when we walk in it. It's supposed to bring us joy and peace. It's supposed to make us long-suffering. It's supposed to make us gentle and kind. It's supposed to bring forth goodness from our lives and faithfulness. It's supposed to make us teachable. It's supposed to make us temperate. And if we let that man on the inside dominate the man on the outside, like Paul said, I keep my body under. Lest after I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. That love of God on the inside of us is supposed to be manifest in our lives in such a way that it brings our body in line. And that can only take place as if we grow in knowledge of who we are in Christ, what God has done for us through the work of his son. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we are who the Bible says we are. We thank you, Father, that you have given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We declare that our lives will reflect the work of God that was done in us at the new birth. We declare that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that righteousness spreads out into every area of our lives. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding us into all truth. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding us into the love of God. We love you, Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Help us, Holy Spirit. We don't ask you to empower us because we know we've already been empowered. But we ask you to reveal to us, open our eyes to the truth of who we are and the power of God that resides upon us and in us that we might walk worthy of this great new birth of the righteousness of God that Jesus was made unto us. We thank you, Father, for making it so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Before we go, let's just lift our hands and thank God for what he's done for us. Father, you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Show us, Holy Spirit. Guide us into the reality of these things. Show us how to glorify Jesus in our lives. Show us, Holy Spirit, how we can walk in the Spirit to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. 
who loved us so much that he sent you to help us, to save us, to redeem us. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much.